Hello folks, Candy here with Generation Red, just with a quick message. Um, this is a long episode. It's also my favorite episode that we have ever recorded because it is very candid. It features our guest, Willie Miller, former Husker fullback and 1997 national champion. Most of this episode is spent on his time after football, which is not easy to listen to. He had issues with addiction as a result of the pain that he was enduring from his football life. It also led to alcoholism and all the other things that go along with the life of despair. When you're at the bottom, man, it can be difficult. So my advice is this episode is not for the faint of heart. It's also not for young ears. So please use discretion when allowing your children to listen to this show. But for the rest of you, in any of you who may be dealing with substance abuse of your own, much like I was until six months ago, I cannot stress more highly how important it is that you listen to the next hour and 52 minutes. But I'm done talking. Willie's going to do most of the talking now, so here it is. <sighs> My favorite episode ever. Running to Freedom. Conversation with Willie Miller. Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Generation Red, the kettle corn of Husker Fan Podcast, where we try to be sweet. But at times, we get salty. I am your host, Ken. And I am your other host, Scott. And Scott's camera is frozen. Well, life is good. So we'll move to that while I try to figure that issue out. (laughs) There's been a lot of bugaboos in the system this evening, folks. But one bugaboo that we haven't had is our guest showed up, which is awesome. Uh, Welcome to Willie Miller, former Husker fullback and 1997 national champion. We're here to talk about football, addiction, and recovery and the freedom that comes from that. So we hope you stick around for the conversation. It should be insightful, should be fun. And to anyone out there who's considering maybe making a lifestyle change, this is a conversation you do not want to miss. So Willie, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate you having me on tonight. Thank you. Not a problem. <clears throat> we've really, uh, we've really enjoyed this last. You've been here since about six thirty, and we've kind of met the family and hung out down here in the studio and talked for a while and heard some cool stories from your time at at NU. And it's just been, uh, I can't wait to see how this conversation unfolds. So, um, <clears throat> right off the get, we'll just let everybody know the plan is we'll talk a little bit about his time at NU, but then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about his post football life and how he ended up where he is today, which is an OR nurse, right? That's at uh, Methodist, Ho- Brian Methodist, Me- Methodist, or just Methodist Hospital Methodist in Omaha, Hospital. right? You got it. So, yep. anyway, so let's get, let's just kick it off with the fun stuff. <laughs> Actually, Willie. There's a question I have to ask you, and I did not warn you of this ahead of time because I, I wanted a, a response that's absolutely natural. Okay. And the question I have for you is, why on earth did you wear number 15 right after Tommy Frazier graduated? <laughs> mm, How could a, you break that's my that's heart? That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. You know, so in high school, I wore the number 40. That was the number that mm-hmm. I got when I moved up to varsity at the end of my 
freshman year. And I wore it all through high school. Um, mm-hmm. Got down to Lincoln. I knew what Schlesinger just got done wearing that. And then when I got there, Bill Legate already had it. So okay. the next thing was, okay, he's got that number taken. And I was just, I, was, I just want to be different. You know, just want to be different. And no other fullback at that time had any number lower than what, like 22 or something in the 20s. So I just asked coach, you know, so let's say, can I wear 15? You mm. know, and they're like, well, if they can find one, you know, big enough in your size, sure. <laughs> and I think they pretty much thought they probably wouldn't be able to get one big enough or that they had one on hand. So they, they probably were like, they probably thought they could just kind of, you know, laugh that off. Cheese and it out. Be like, nice try, Willie. You know, they only make them in smalls <laughs> or mediums. But they happen to have one. So next thing you know, yeah, I'm wearing 15. But um, the other thing really and truthfully is that, yeah, with Tommy and the amazing player he was, I knew without a doubt I wasn't going to make any kind of, I don't know, uh, history with the number 15. But mm-hmm. I knew a lot of eyes would be on it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a person that also likes to put a lot of pressure on myself in that mm-hmm. sense. Like, for instance, with recovery, you know, I put a lot of my business out there about recovery. It's one of those things that just holds you accountable. So therefore, yes, I knew that playing to make sure, hey, I'm not, I don't take plays off. Therefore, put a number on you. So mm-hmm. I put 15 on. So, like I said, there's no, uh, you know, disrespect towards Tommy at all. It was more so of an honor <laughs> to try and, you know, show him that uh, I respected the heck out of him and I wanted to bring some uh, pride to that number, even though it didn't need any, because like I said, it still shines today and everybody knows whose number that is. Yes, but sir. still, yeah. it just would look happy. Why, who the heck is this fullback wearing freaking 15? <laughs> you know, just kind of, you know, confuse people or play with them a little bit. So it was right. fun. It was fun. 200 right. IQ move. I 200, like yeah, I like the move. I figured that was probably what the reasoning was. That's why I didn't ask you about it before, but I think that's that's really cool. Living up to the legacy of the number, that's pretty awesome. No, that's no. pretty awesome. Um, so you ended up at you, – you played high school football in Omaha, right? That's correct, Bellevue, at Bellevue, Bellevue West High School. Bellevue, okay. Mm-hmm. And who was who was the one that reached out from NU first to contact you? And were you, were they the only school that was after you, or were there some other Division One schools coming? No, there was several Division One schools um, contacting me. So Coach John Feynman was my uh, head high school football coach, and he basically paid attention to the way that, uh, you know, I was in the, the weight room before I even was a – freshman actually at Bellevue West and I was mm-hmm. working out and so he just saw how hard I worked there's a guy there that worked with us named Odious Lee and we worked out with Odious all the time um, so they knew how much I invested into it and how how hard I worked so that was rewarded by me being a starting fullback my sophomore year right away mm-hmm. and uh, I remember that you know he had told me if I'm told me later on had he known how young I was he wouldn't have made that decision because I was 13 and I turned 14 in September. Oh, so wow. 14, 14, 14, okay. 15, 15, 16, 17. Something like that. Point is, because I graduated on 17, so I don't want to okay. do all the math specific diving thinking right now. I don't mess it up. <laughs> My point is that he didn't realize how young I was. because I was a year younger than everybody when I graduated. So long story short is that he had me start my sophomore year. Um, I think by the end of that year, I, my numbers had me in the top 10 rushers in the state. And from that point, I mean, yeah, Nebraska was uh, talking to me right away. And that's what Coach Willis was running back coach. But then all the other colleges around Colorado was, Kansas State was, Kansas was, Northwestern uh, was. So all these different universities were also reaching out. Now I can tell you that part of that whole 
time frame is that Lincoln talked to me the whole time. Going into my junior year, there was a lot of anticipation about how I was going to perform, what I was going to do. And I happened to get in a car wreck with my best friend in high school. He was driving and we lost control of the cars. We were doing silly kid things and, you know, yeah. messing around with some other buddies of ours. And the car rolled and flipped and all that good stuff. I got thrown out of the car, you know, after it rolled a couple of times. Then I get thrown out the side window, hit a tree and lay there for a minute. Nothing's broken. Um, no stitches were required, but it ripped the heck out of both my groins. And so I could barely run that season mm. at all. Um, and so the result of which was all the other universities are reaching out to me because you're getting letters all the time, right? right. Getting let all these letters this is back in the day. There's no email. There's no social media things. This is, you get letters and you take your little letters and you put them in your little box, you know, <laughs> so you can reference them. You can't put them back on email and say, oh yeah, I remember that email from back. No, it's your letter <laughs> in your box. You yeah. go search through it and you file it, you find it. Everyone stopped contacting me. Um, the only person who did not was Coastal is at Lincoln. And then going into my senior year, I went down to the camp that Lincoln had mm -hmm. to give a chance to kind of show them because again, I've shared this before. I hated blocking. You you would not <laughs> see me block in high school. You would see me get run over by guys at times, things like that, because that's when I took my playoff. That was my my take a playoff is you want me to block? I'm taking the playoff. But I'd run the ball as hard as I could mm -hmm. and like crazy. So being down at that camp, they got a chance to see me running like I normally would. They got a chance, though, to also see me where Souls had told me, you know, he believed in me. He believed that I had the ability to be a great blocker because he saw the passion that I had when I ran. He saw the pad level that I had. He saw all these tools he felt I had that he could just help shape them, make them, mold them into what exactly what he's looking for for a starting fullback. So being down there. That gave that exposure, hmm. came into my senior year. We're doing just a regular, you know, eye formation. Going to the first two or three games, I had my regular 100 yards a game. Our tailback gets kicked off the team because he was doing some things. I guess he got caught doing some stuff he shouldn't have been doing. I talked to Coach Feynman at the time, asked him, can we go single back? Because he knew how much I love running the ball. He lets me know, well, are you really wanting to run the ball 25 to 30 times a game? I said, absolutely. I said, I'd hmm. love to do that. He said, I'll give you this. I'll give you an audition. How about that? He says, is that fair? I said, absolutely. He's like, so we're playing Omaha South this week. We'll see how it goes. If it goes well, then I'll entertain it. Mm -hmm. But that at least gives me some time to figure out what the heck I'm going to do anyway. I'm like, perfect. So we go and we play against Omaha South for that game. I think it was something like 27 carries for like 260 something yards, you know, wow. three or four touchdowns. Um, it's how that started, but that's how it went the rest of the season. Yeah, I think the average was around 225 to 230 a game from that point on. I mean, the game he that Coach Lewis came to was us playing against Omar Bryan. They had the number one, number two running backs in the state, and he got a show. I mean, I ended up putting up like 302 yards on 30 carries. The other kid put up like 275. His last name was Kellogg. And I had like five touchdowns. He had like four touchdowns. So it was just boom, 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 back and forth. And long story short is, uh, you know, uh, they basically offer, but at the same time, that's when everybody starts contacting me. Everybody's offering. And my thing was, I'm all about loyalty. Yes, you know, sir. they never gave mm -hmm. up on me. They talked to me the whole time. Now they didn't have the offer mm -hmm. on the table, but once I kind of proved myself and was leading the state, I think it was exactly, I think seven games into that senior year, it was a hundred attempts running the ball for exactly a thousand yards. It was boom, boom. That's how it lined up. Hmm. Then that's when they offered and that's when everybody else did. And, uh, 
yeah, so that's how I got down to Lincoln was through that. And, you know, again, I had to think, you know, Coach Farmer, he's passed away. He's been gone for a little while. But had he not given me that opportunity, you know, mm. who knows what would happen because everybody was done, you know, watching yeah. me. Yeah. Okay. Well, mm. <clears throat> you get to Lincoln. You you redshirted 96, right? Yeah. Yep. And then you, how much did you play in 97? Did you play special teams? Did you play at all? Oh, yeah. I was okay. on special teams. Yeah. Okay. I lettered. I was a four-year letterman. So okay. I was on uh, kickoff return. Uh, was a fullback that we we set the wedge. So at the time, be Billy Gate and I. Um, then it transferred at times. It been Kingston and I uh, mm. back there. Joel was a starter. Mm-hmm. Um, got in on that. Uh, also was about my third string fullback or so, something like that during that season. You know, and got a little bit of playing time. We started blowing some people out. I mean, I got into uh, guys. My first touchdown that I had down there. I only had a few was uh, Coach Osborne's 250 victory against uh, Oklahoma. You know, we got mm-hmm. to beating them to a certain point where uh, I don't know if this is true or not because, again, I'm just engaged. I'm in the game. I'm playing. But I heard that Coach Osborne's kind of letting Oklahoma's head coach know, that, hey, we're coming to the right or we're coming to the left because, again, <laughs> he wasn't going to have us stop playing hard because we practiced right. so hard back in the day. It was ridiculous mm-hmm. that he wanted us to have the opportunity to be out there and, and do what we could do. Ended up scoring, you know, I scored my first touchdown in that game. So it was pretty cool because it was his, you know, 250 victories, my mm-hmm. very first touchdown. I mean, and it was against uh, Oklahoma. And it was against Oklahoma. And it, but it was different back then. It, it was, was the, different. well, I can tell you too that that was, I'm not going to try and worry about being political, all that kind of stuff. The point is that Oklahoma, the saying was they looked like Tarzan played like Jane. By the time <laughs> we were done playing, or by the time my, my time period was done at Lincoln, Oklahoma looked like Tarzan, played like Tarzan. You know, it was yeah, no joke, did. but they have always been specimens and some athletic you know, people. Just their passion, though, when that first year, uh, my redshirt freshman year, they just didn't have that. So mm-hmm. yeah. they weren't there yet. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Those were some of the biggest beatdowns we'd ever given Oklahoma was in 96, 97. I think we dropped 60 on them in Norman in 96. And then, what was it, sixty nine to seven or sixty three to seven or something like that? That year like when that. you got in the game, yeah, it was something like yeah, that. That was yeah. pretty crazy. So, <clears throat> move on to you played in forty two games. I kind of looked up some of the stats. You were a two time academic All American, All Big Twelve, All Big Twelve. Yeah. Okay, and mm-hmm. then um, oh yeah, that was, it was all, all conference, wasn't it? Well, that's all good. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then uh, Brooke Baringer, you got citizenship the uh, team. citizenship team. Remember, and, yep. yep. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Move on to the, when did you uh, really start playing a lot? Was it 99? Was that the year that you really started getting into the game a lot more? Because Joel was gone. Right. Joel you had, was gone. Um, who was ahead of you at that point? Was it Crewald? Crewald no, was it? No, yet? Crewald was after. Yep. Okay. Crewald and those guys were afterwards. So basically, um, I had played my way into basically being Joel's backup by the end of that year so my sophomore year Mm -hmm. Uh, going into my senior year joel was gone legate was gone um that left uh, myself then kingston josh cobb um you know uh this kid uh, tyrone euler that came in from battle Mm -hmm. creek uh we had uh, they just gave us yeah so at that point though um was when i ended up starting you know we went through stream ball i had a big surgery uh before that year um, where they had to reattach my groans. Uh, 
and mm-hmm. reattached my left abdominal wall to the pelvis and all that good stuff. It's the old turf. Mm-hmm. They called that, I forget, some osteitis pubitis you know, term yes. is what they called it back then. It was like the thing that D'Angelo Evans had. Mm-hmm. I had to get it done. Um, several other guys. I mean, Scott Shanley ended up having to get it done. So, yeah. And so going into uh, my junior year, yeah, we, I knew that I was going to be the starter and um, really had prepared. And I can say without a doubt, my junior year was a year when I was in the best shape of my life. I was the fastest I'd ever been. I was the cuttest and leanest I'd ever been to start that season. And then, you know, that season started going. So, mm. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, 2000, that was the year you started all 12 games. Is that true? So I know you started 12. At least that's what the stats on Huskers.com said. That you started all 12 that year. So the way the stats work, too, just so you know, because I didn't understand how that worked either. <laughs> because I was trying to, I've always, you know, when I got done playing and I hear that, you know, that was a four-year letterman that I started like 12 games or something like that. I was actually, I was frustrated. I was hurt because I'm like, how did I only start 12 games when I'm the starting fullback my junior and senior season? Oh, gotcha. Full-time, okay. the whole – and the way that it works is the same reason I did not end up getting an academic All-American. They base that on the rules of the game, and whoever starts in the formation is considered the starter for the game. So we had okay. several games where we opened in an ace formation or a trips formation where there is no fullback. Mm-hmm. We, we did that a lot my senior year, which means I didn't get a start for those games. And so that's fine. None of that matters. Again, it's all about the game, the opponent, what we're trying to do. But I did not know during that time that that gets me dinged on my career starts or anything like that. (laughs) Because, you know, who knows? You know, as a young kid filled with testosterone and and ego, I'm sure I would have been pretty pissed off. Been like, wait a minute. You know, I'm a starter. Like, no. But, uh, you know, you're just doing your job. You're playing for your team. You're trying to win. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you find out that, you don't get credit for starts because you're in a different formation. To me, like today, it's like none of that even matters because that was a starter. But yeah, when you're looking at the numbers and those official type of things, stats. yeah, the official yeah. stat of starts. Now I started two full sure. seasons. I missed a couple of games my uh, junior year due to getting a high angle sprain, like a game or two. I can't really remember. But yeah, <laughs> things like one that. of those. Those aren't you know, fun. Um, no. Those aren't fun at all. Um, I guess just to wrap up kind of your, your time at NU, um, that Tennessee game. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. That Tennessee game. Scott, would you do me a favor while he answers this question? Could you unplug the USB cable from your or your camera here? Yes. <laughs> I guess I could have done that. I keep thinking it's that one, but it's this one. Uh, sorry, folks. Just behind the scenes, fun stuff, and then plug it back in. Um yes. What was I going to ask? Oh, the Tennessee game. Tennessee game. <laughs> yeah, that 2000 <clears throat> Fiesta Bowl, yeah. which uh, wasn't your last bowl game. Obviously, you played against Northwestern that next year, too, in that Alamo Bowl that we just absolutely went spanko on them. Um, how cool was that to to bust some of those runs against that defense? And I'm sure we're chirping just as much as they were chirping in 97. That was special. Um, <laughs> that There's... That was that was special. You know, the thing about that game was um, that was Coach McBride's last yes. game. And I, I, I can't speak for all the guys, but I can speak for myself. Like being a kid, you know, and you're red shirting, that means that whole season I'm going against mm-hmm. his number one defense and I'm giving them my best. And I, Coach McBride was a pretty awesome guy that he, when he saw that guys gave their all, 
He respected that and he had a respect for you, even though you weren't his guy, you know, because you were on defense, you're still his guy because yes, of sir. the effort you give and your mm -hmm. determination and your willingness to come to practice every single day and go against his number one guys. So for me personally, it was just one of those things like this is, you know, last chance to kind of be a part of something big for Coach McBride and mm -hmm. um, to have some of those big runs that happened. It was uh, it's pretty cool. So this is the long one that I got caught on that I love to talk about. And, <laughs> and uh, because, look, as you get older, it's that SEC it's, it's, speed, dude. You know, it's not just the <laughs> SEC speed, man. It's 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 the fact that um, as you're older, man, you we were run the ball and we literally um, you, you'd run you, you run your play out. So that's 20 something, 25, 30 yards that you're giving your max. And, you know, you may you'll run when you're testing, you know, you run your 40. Yeah. And that's about it as far as when it comes to, say, long runs, especially, say, for a fullback, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, tailbacks, I mean, they're consistently used to that during scrimmages, games, things mm -hmm. like that. They get a big break. But a fullback, you got to remember that game down there in Tennessee, I remember getting on the scale because they got all the bowl food and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I remember Doke Ostergaard taking a look at me going, Willie, good. What's Willie, the scale? It said 268. Oh, you went so, in that game at 268. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's me playing at 268. And I played about 265 my time down there. Even my leanest best for the start of that junior year was hovering right under 260. Me, a little heavy, was close to 270. But uh, for that game, yeah, it, the day before I got on the scale, it was 268. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I've happened to see that because I don't go, I'm not a guy that goes back and watches a lot of my old game film and right. stuff. It's just, it's different. I don't know how to explain it. So I really don't watch a lot of that, but that's one that I will, because people ask about it or want to see it. And so I've watched that one. It's like, you see me scoot. And then I think you see me, like I said, I turned in kind of the water boy where I'm, you know, it's just, it's not, I don't know. It's just kind of like, what the hell is going on all of a sudden? Because yeah, I'm tired. And there's a really fast guy coming up behind me, and I know he's probably going to catch me. So I really shouldn't be doing the technique of looking over my shoulder. It slows you down. Yes, I know better. As some little kid told me, you know, a week back after I got back from that game, don't ever look over your shoulder. Yeah. I know, kid. <laughs> just, just get there one day. Just get there one day. <laughs> no, You'll I'm understand. Kidding. But, yes, but the point is, is that, yes, it just, you know, I got caught. And it's the neat thing for me personally is on any of those kind of plays, I never heard the crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't really even see the crowd. I just see what's in front of me, you know, what's in my mm -hmm. bubble. Um, but at moments like that, you, you hear the crowd. I would hear the crowd, hear the roar, and it was just something mm -hmm. you, you can't even put words to it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's special. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, now that we've gotten, we'll talk about graduation here in just a minute. First thing we need to do uh, right at the moment, though, is uh, – of course, now my camera's not working. Well, this has just been a great day all the way around. Uh, we need to let y'all know that you can save $10 on an annual subscription to Hale Varsity by going to Hale Varsity slash subscribe. Enter the coupon code Generation Red, all one word, and you will uh, receive $10 off on an annual subscription. Or just go down to the description in this video on YouTube or into the uh, top line of the show notes on the audio podcast on Tuesday morning, and you'll be able to click that link there and it'll automatically add the code for you. So let's transition to post football. I know 
I've, I've watched you tell your story once on the Husk, on the doc talk podcast uh, with Travis and Rob Zadiska. Yep. And you talked specifically about that last year or two, I believe if I recall correctly, feeling the effects of playing football. Yeah. Uh, for example, the fact that there are times you felt a lightning bolt hitting you and you'd have to sit down and things like that. When did those kind of symptoms start kicking in uh, before you actually left to where they, Right away, or was it in the last couple of years you were there that you were in pain? No, I mean, the, the pain stuff was just the entire time. But as okay. far as the lightning bolt coming out of nowhere as I'm walking around campus, that was in that last season. Um, okay. I'd say probably about halfway through that season um, is, is when that really started happening pretty bad. And playing in games, you know, mm-hmm. no longer being able to kind of lift my hands uh, to hit somebody or whatever, just kind of using the battering hand. Uh, battering ram with just the forehead to try and take care of a guy. Um, mm-hmm. That that's how that the, the end of that my senior season was. Um, yeah, so that's 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 when that stuff was at its peak. Was during that uh, the last part of that senior year for sure. Yeah, was it was it something that just out of nowhere for no particular reason started to happen or was, was there an instance that you remember where you just got hit the wrong way or you hit somebody the wrong way and, and then a day or two later you started to feel the effects of it. Do you remember kind of the moment where you were like, okay, I'm in pain all the time, but this is, this is something that's a little bit different. You know, that's a tough one. You know, it's like I can remember certain moments. It's like I always wore a neck roll, right? Because I remember even in high school, I once, I think, uh, something broke on my, my, my pad. So I went and just had a series without it or something. And just, again, I just, it, it just didn't feel right in my neck, just even like at that moment of mm. high school play. But, and, and Lincoln, you know, always had to have the, the neck collar um, to give that extra support and that extra cushion. You know, it's like uh, from what it, it was described to me from a specialist it was that you know you 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 your your neck has like this backward kind of C curve to it or whatever it makes it a little spongy. And he was saying that he thought through all the hitting and things like that, it kind of straightened it out, almost extended it the other direction. Which he mean he was saying it just caused that jamming. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of the little sponge give when you pop somebody, boom, it just jams more. Uh-huh. And I could say towards the end, especially in that beginning of senior year and then as it progressed that as I'm hitting those guys on ISOs, it's just stinging a little differently because here's the thing people don't understand. I've said this before and I'll say it again because, you know, you pick up on little things here and there. Mm-hmm. As a Nebraska fullback, if you don't have a stinger in a game, you're not doing your job, right? Mm-hmm. And so the quicker you go ahead and get that over with, the better. And sometimes you're going to have one on one side, you're going to have another one on the other side and you just play through that. That's part of the game. That's part of what we used to do. But this was different than that because it was a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. I could still play through it, but I just knew mentally it's like it probably shouldn't. But again, at the end of the day, it was you're going to do what you need to do to you know play and for your team to win. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, that's that was definitely was something new. Yeah. So the pain was there the entire time you 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 played for the most part. As you leave and transition out of school, where did that? Where did you end up going? What was your next step after college? What what did you end up doing for a living? And was the pain stopping you from really having a quality life? 
Yeah, I'd say without a doubt, the pain was always something. Um, you know, heck, even when I was at Lincoln, I couldn't really even do squats because my knees hurt so bad. I had mm. like the um, tendonitis issues. So mm. we do special different things that I have to work on with a guy down there, Brian Bailey. Won't go deep into that. Just simply saying that all the joints in the body always mm. hurt. Um, so being done, my knees hurt, my back hurt. My neck hurt. It kind of sounds like a comedian. My knees, my back, my neck. But anyway, the point <laughs> is, is that, yes, I was hurting. When I got done, I actually, I really didn't even know what I wanted to do. Um, I was never one of the guys that uh, thought about playing professionally, anything like that. I didn't, I wasn't a kid thinking, oh, I'm going to go play in the league as I was older in high school. And I was always that guy that looked at where I'm at, you know, and then wanting to play at Lincoln, wanting to win championships there. So when it's done, I remember that there were different companies that were interviewed on Canvas. I mean, one was Pella. So I interviewed with Pella just to kind of do the interviewing process. Um, my major was communication studies. And um, again, just an idea of that is reason why I'm just going to go through this for a moment is 90. I knew mentally that 95 percent of people are terrified to get up and speak in front of people. Mm-hmm. So was I. But I told myself, hey. I don't want to be an accountant. I don't want to say be a specific doctor or something at this moment. Um, therefore, you know, I want to try and find something I can have a niche. I felt that could be my niche and that's what I got my degree in. So I can get in front of people, I can talk and be comfortable. Now I'm always nervous. I'm always, you know, it's a scary experience, but I get up there and I can do it because I've made myself mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. So I knew I could do that. I knew about interviewing and those type of things from having that major so back to the point is Pelo's there to interview with them. Then another company was there, Pfizer. I didn't know anything about pharmaceutical companies, uh, pharmaceutical sales, nothing. Um, interview with Pfizer gets the interview went really well. You know, they wanted me, they offered me the position to work for Pfizer. I went and did like a little, uh, what's called like a ride along, you know, where you go with a representative, a sales representative and see what it's like. And I thought it seemed like a really neat job. You know, you're going around, you're talking to doctors. This is back in the day when you had some access, you could go and, and do things. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, that seems like a pretty good job. I mean, you make decent money, you make good money. And, um, you know, you get to learn and you get to help patients. Um, but my only hang up was I'm done playing football. Mm-hmm. Right. And so last thing I want to do is hear about football all the time. Or, hey, how was, you know, how was it playing? Or that's not what I wanted to hear. And right. I'm also a person like a lot of guys when they say go to Lincoln or they go to a big D1 school, a lot of guys get smacked in the face of reality of you are no longer this stud athlete that some may never have had to really work out before, right? You're you're facing several guys that are all at the same level you are at who's going to elevate their game level to become a starter, right? And mm-hmm. so that was also my similar mentality when it came to work. It's like, I don't want to work here and be in Lincoln just doing pharmaceutical sales and just use my name because one, I'm going to talk about football all the time. And I don't feel like talking about football. It's over and I'm not really happy. It's over. My body's broken. Right. Let's not do that. And two, it's like, you know, Hey, let's go somewhere, somewhere new and let's start anew. And so I went and uh, I interviewed with Eli Lilly. One of my, actually today is one of my college roommates. It was one of my very best friends growing up. It's his wife today. It was her, um, aunt was with Eli Lilly and ended up interviewing with them and ended up getting an offer to go to Denver. So I went out there and that's kind of how I started my career. My professional career was doing, um, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical sales with Eli Lilly in Denver. Okay. 
So about what time, once you got out of school, what time, about what time in this timeline was it that the addiction began to take hold as far as pain management? When did you get first prescribed the pain management meds and when did that start to turn toward the negative side? And did you see it as a negative at first? So I can tell you right away that no, I didn't see the negative at all, at all. You know, I was in pain. Um, but I'll back up and say pretty much as soon as I walked off the field, Donald Lincoln was seeing a doctor and them seeing my x-rays, um, seeing my MRIs, seeing that, you know, um, there's spinal stenosis that was going on. There is a specialist that said that I played through three spinal concussions in that senior year alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other issues I had right away, you know, they were prescribing, um, like the hydrocodones. And back then, I didn't really even know what they were. But uh, looking back now and reflecting, I think it's like the hydrocodone was like a 10 milligram pill with 650 of acetaminophen, which is basically the same as Tylenol. So yeah. it's combo pill. That's what I started off with. And that's a pretty good sized dose. Music people start with fives. Mine was right away at tens. And from that tens, you know, we just kind of start gradually upping. Um, but I can tell you this is when I was in college, I was all about not getting in trouble, not mm-hmm. looking, making the university look bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the utmost respect for, you know, Coach Osborne, most utmost respect for Coach Solich. So mm-hmm. whoever was a head coach, you know, I was not going to be the guy in the headline that was bringing shame. So I knew early because, you know, even at college, like I may have had a time where I'd sit and drink with my buddies or something, but it'd be at home because I knew once I started kind of drinking, like I was a binge drinker. I didn't stop till it was all gone. So I knew mm-hmm. that and recognized it early. I mean, I went out to drink in public like one time where I went to like the rail or something for like my 21st birthday. But that's really all you ever saw. The guys didn't see me out and about and that kind of stuff. So I bring all that up to say that once I'm done with football, once I'm no longer in Lincoln, now I'm over and I'm kind of over in Denver. Now it's time to have some fun because I worked my butt off, you know, in Mm -hmm. Lincoln. I was all about studying and studying and studying, getting my grades. Um, And now I'm at this point where football is just gone. And And you want it to be gone. I want it to be gone, but I don't want it to be gone. But so Uh, it's like I want football to be gone with all the pounding and everything else that it did to my body. Mm-hmm. The thing that I didn't realize, and still it took me years to understand, what I missed in my heart was being a part of the team. Brotherhood. You know, the brotherhood as yeah. far as, because I really wasn't even very close to a lot of guys on the team. That's just how it was. I had a few guys that I was pretty close to, but I just, I don't know, I just was in my own kind of lane. But again, when it was gone and no longer having that one place you went and, you know, you could release everything, all the built up emotions, feelings, all that stuff on the field, you could uh, play together, you know, you could win a game, those, Mm -hmm. all that, with that being gone, without being a part of something, I felt very alone and isolated and shamed and, and sad, but yet mad, but it, it was a lot of things because, again, I kind of share with you, there was some, maybe some misunderstandings at time with maybe a certain coach or two or something that things. So there's all those things I really held on to and was really frustrated and, you know, angry about or to a certain degree. And what I found is that now that I don't have that daily discipline of this is the schedule and this is what you're going to be following. And I actually had the freedom of doing mm-hmm. pharmaceutical sales where there's more autonomy. You do have certain territories and areas, but it's like, 
all you have to do is hit your numbers, hit the amount of visits you need to do and get your sales numbers where your sales numbers are right. See, I'll put it this way. I knew that I need to see what at back then it was like at least nine doctors. So what I would do is I just make sure, boom, I have my stuff where I know where the doctor's going to be. Boom. I'm seeing them first thing in the morning and, and getting my day in whatever area it was, even if it's two, three hours away, I'm knocking out say 11 doctors. First thing that gives me the rest of the day and the evening to do whatever I want. So, it, mm. you know, it wouldn't be, you know, uncommon that when I'm up there during that time period that in midday I'm in the bar just mm. because it's not that I'm in the bar and I'm just slamming and drinking my sorrows away. No, it's just, I like the people watch, you know, mm. I like the people watch. I still like the people watch, but um, you know, again, when you're doing your job in this autonomy and driving around in your car, it's pretty lonely. You get in an environment like that, even if, mm -hmm. again, you know, not, you know, slamming them at that time or in, in a deep funk at that time, but just being around people. And for me, I was a person that it, I felt it, it was kind of needed to loosen me up a little bit mm -hmm. because I, yes, that's probably why I didn't have a lot of close buddies when I played down Lincoln Cause I, I think I was wired a little tight, you know, and everything else, <laughs> you know, I just, that's how I was. I had very high uh, principles and, and expectations of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so that's when it kind of began was just letting loose a little bit early and then without even noticing um, the pills, the doses got, you know, um, where they grew in strength. Then if they weren't quite working, because that's how the body works, it makes adjustments. And then, then, yep, then, yeah. yep, and then it finally maxes out. So therefore, you got to go to a, a higher dose, but then also a different um, balance. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing the hydrocodone, you start doing the oxycodone. And then you have the ones that have the acetaminophen in them. You get with the right doctor and you share that, oh, you have concerns about your liver or your kidneys. Then all of a sudden, next, well, then there is the option to do it without that. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds yeah. great. Let's just sure. get, you know. I had that question you know? in my mind because so, I was like six, 675 <laughs> acetaminophen. I mean, you're taking more, if you're taking more than four of those a day, you're already, you're already tinging on that's too much. Exactly. So. Exactly. And so yeah. for the regular person who's taking maybe one a day or something, that's not a big deal. But for a person that's taking, you know, three or four and it's prescribed that way. Yeah. They're saying, okay, that's way too much acetaminophen. We got to knock some of that out. Let's just go straight oxy roxy. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the, uh, the side of, yes, you're in pain, you want to treat your pain. It's kind of like, Hey, whatever's going to do the job. And without you noticing, it it does get to that point of whatever's going to do the job and and do a little bit extra to where I'm just good. Because mm -hmm. it kind of gets to that point, either one of you ever seen Ballers, like with The Rock? This no. This is back a while ago. Okay. No. It was like an HBO show that had The Rock on it. Point is, is it kind of shows him as like an ex-NFL guy. And he walks around uh, with a bottle of pills and he kind of, you know, he pops them on occasion like Skittles. And that's really what I did. You know, mm -hmm. as I had my pain pills with me all the time and... Hey, if I felt a little extra ache, boom. You know, if I felt a little certain kind of way, like feeling a little extra sad or whatever, boom. If I'm having a good time out and about, you know, boom. It just that's just how mm. it was. So that's kind of how the addiction was. That's how the cycle kind of went and till it really spun out of control without me realizing. Did you ever did you ever find yourself because as an as an addict myself, did you ever find yourself at some points allowing uh, an intrusive impulsive thought come come over you where you go what what happens if i take four instead of one just to see what happens oh yeah oh yeah absolutely 
Okay. Absolutely. You know, that's the line for addiction, right? It's like one's never enough, thousands, or no, sorry. Yeah, my brain's already shut down. But, you know, like one's <laughs> never enough, thousands, not, not too many or whatever. You know, the point is, is that you're always wanting more. Yeah. You never mm-hmm. should start in the first place, but you're always wanting more. And it's like they talk about, you know, when it comes to, say, different substances, you have a person, well, we'll just stick with alcohol. You know, a person that has a little alcoholic drink, their little beer, you know, and they're just done. They kind of leave it there in their glass. And anybody that can find, you know, leave some beer, you know, in the glass and walk away because they're they're, they're good. Done. There's somebody I don't understand because yeah, there's there's no such thing as compute. being done. No, it does not compute. It's like there's still beer in there or there's still liquor. It's like you need to finish that because that's part of I don't know. You just don't leave it. You know, it's kind of like you're I don't know. Like I got cleaning your plate. Clean you your plate. Kid. It's like my dad yeah. was very strict about that. Right. I got you know, you get a butt whooping for not cleaning your plate. So therefore, it's like it, that's no difference when it comes to especially alcohol. So. But yes, without a doubt, many times and early on, exactly. Experimenting, Even, trying to see experiment kind of euphoric threshold you could reach. Without a doubt. And I can say, you know, as times got uh, more challenging, which we haven't really dove into, but I can tell you there's definitely times where I took a whole bottle just because I wanted to be done, yeah. but then wake up that next morning pissed off still to be here. So I can say I've had that experience as well, that I've done that several times. Yeah. So... Like I said, that's those are the things in life is uh, I wondered for a long time, you know, why was I even here? You know, and like I said, we'll get through some of that stuff. But um, it's crazy, you know, like to still be here and to, uh, you know, have the ability to try and help other people. Like that's that's the why, you know, I didn't know back then going through it. So. So take me kind of into the point where you start spiraling downward toward those nights where you want to take that whole bottle and hopefully not wake up the next day. Were you still in Denver at this point? Had you transitioned back to Nebraska? How, how long after graduation was it that you kind of got to that point? You know, I'd say really within that first year of being done. Um, Cause I got, you know, I was a guy, I got married early, you know, I got married while I was in college. I kind of wanted to do that whole, I was walking a tight, you know, rope with God, you know, trying to do this exact by the book type of thing. And I can tell you that I was pretty pissed off at God because, again, my body failed me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of frustrations. Um, go out and do the thing at Denver for a year. And by the end of that year, you know, I'll get divorced from the first one. Um, going to come back here to Nebraska. And, yeah, I'm just in a different spot. You know, I'm, 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 I'm angry, but I'm not. I can't. You know, like today I have emotional intelligence where I can recognize the things that are leading up to a point of being angry, that secondary emotion. Back then I didn't have a clue and there was just so much built up, the being done with football, the frustrated about how some things may have went, the thing about being frustrated about relationships, the thing about being pissed off at God. Mm-hmm. All that was there already. And then I come back here to Omaha, kind of starting over, doing a little bit <laughs> different jobs, pharmaceutical sales, again, partying, having fun, living life a bit. And that emotional part just kept kind of building because, again, I just didn't have and I didn't even know this at the time. Like I no longer had the way of getting that worked out. Mm. Yeah. At the time, I was kind of going to the gym and doing some lifting, but lifting changes like the the whole pleasure of lifting. It wasn't even so much pleasure at all in college. It was working your ass off, killing yourself so that you can go out there and dominate on the field. Mm -hmm. When you're done playing, it's almost like, what's the point? Yeah, you know, right, yeah. what is the point to kind of work out and get me a, get a little sweat going? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, you know, back then it's like I need to work out till I'm ready to throw up or I do go throw up. I mean, that's just what you're trained mm-hmm. to do. So this new change, it just 
I, I wasn't getting it. The whole transformation of being done with college and what working out to life, working out, it just wasn't making sense. It wasn't computing. I didn't know that at the time. Again, I know that now. Then I start just going through life in general, you know, went through another marriage, um, you know, had a kid, had my daughter who I loved, you know, my daughter who's 18 today, had that thing kind of go, you know, that happened and just the frustrations of work, trying to deal with a young child. Thing I've learned about myself today is I am horrible without sleep. Mm. If I am sleepy or I'm hungry, watch out. You know, it's just one of those things. And I also got to check myself. It's like, I'm tired. I need a moment. So going through those things and just continue to build up stuff because I had a, a big, I've always had high expectations of myself or, or wanted to do the best I can do. And my problem would be that I do that with other people and it didn't matter who you were like at work or something. I'd expect everybody to give their best all the time or to put their best foot forward or so it just, you'd have that, you have friends, you'd wondering that. So all these things I'm looking at and I'm starting to get frustrated because I'm starting to feel like I'm the victim of everything. I have, my <laughs> friends don't care about me. I, I, I contact my friends and I'm there for my friends. But when I need my friends, they're not there for me. You right. know, relationships suck. You know, I'm always putting all the work in. I'm always cleaning this or whatever. And really, is that really what went down? Probably not. No, but your brain just has a way of doing this, right? This is the brain for me personally of the addiction of the victim of things. And that's just the avenue I went down as all these things were occurring. Like I said, so just building and building and building, you know, and finally, I mean, and as these things are building, you can see it in my weight, man, because I mean, I go from, you know, getting done, like I said, when I was my leanest, you know, was, around 260, um, looking the healthiest by the time, I mean, I'm done. I mean, right away I'm starting to put on weight. And I mean, within that first time frame, I mean, I'm up to 300 by we're going back to like, Oh, four roughly around the time my daughter's born. And hmm. throughout that 300 just continues to gain to gain. And during that time, Lots of dumb things. I did a lot of dumb things. Um, but the dumbest and the one that I got in trouble for was when I had the road rage incident with an off-duty police officer. And when that whole thing went down, um, like I said, at the end of the day, you know, I was all justified in my mind and my reasoning and everything else. And um, it's a situation that happened. Again, a guy in his regular car, it's like a little blazer. Again, he's in his regular clothes, has like a flannel T-shirt on whatever, whatever we had words. And, you know, I ended up bumping my car into his get arrested over this. And it's a big story. You know, it's all over the news, you know, ex Husker, you know, the Miller is arrested for, and they were saying something like, you know, the charges were, uh, something about like a, some assault charge for attempted assault or something. Cause he had said that it tried to hit him. Um, and then there was the part for the criminal mischief because that's property damage greater than $1,500 back then. Mm-hmm. It's been amended to $5,000 today, or they changed that law like three years ago. So, mm-hmm. but the point of all that was that's when the shame set in is because mm-hmm. I went through all that time trying to keep my nose clean, not do anything dumb, you lay low. You know, I'm just a guy that, yeah, I played football a long time ago, but, you know, since then I'm just a regular guy that's living life. You get in trouble. You're no longer that regular guy that's trying to live life. You're this ex-athlete guy that your name is just, again, your name, the association to the university, the association yeah. with the head coach. 
And I felt like an idiot because, again, one of the most inspirational people in my life um, for grown up advice and for trying to live up to being a man and for making wise decisions, remembering that student always comes before at the athlete when yes. student athlete. Those are all things that Coach Osborne taught us. And so to get in trouble and to have it tied to that, it made me feel like the biggest piece of shit in the world. Now, and I, this is the thing that people who know me, they, I, I say this and I've said this on a couple of podcasts. I do have this. I have a PhD in negative self-talk. I do. It's just one of those things that's instilled in me. Okay. It's like my dad, just my dad's a great guy. And I, I talked about that on with Travis Justice and with, you know, mm-hmm. Rob Zadisko about how I have a wonderful relationship with my dad today because I've had to do a lot of work to understand that my dad did the best he could with the tools that he had at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he and I are good. But that being said, old school principles, when you mess up, you're like, you know, that was like, you're a dumb ass piece of shit. And it wasn't so much the, the piece of shit was a little bit extra that he added, didn't maybe need to add, but the you're a dumbass <laughs> or, you know, you're an idiot, you know, just yeah. all those little statements, you know, a little smack on the head, you know, you, again, it's not like he's trying to be like, I'm the worst person in the world type of thing. It's just his fatherly love thing. Okay. I'm not trying to, we won't, we're not going to go into the psychology of all that. Like I'm trying to write here and I'm just simply saying those <laughs> yeah. are events that occurred. Right. So whenever I mess up, that's what comes in my head. You're a dumbass, you know, or you're an idiot or just things like that. And so having that, you know, I've, I just, so you combine that with getting in trouble, boom, my world is just done. It's done. And and I know right then and there that that's a felony. And uh, thank God the way it worked out is that they got rid of the whole um, assault thing because, again, a woman saw the whole thing, knows that I didn't try and throw a punch at the guy. Again, I did run my car in the back of his. So it, they convicted me of a felony for criminal mischief. So having a felony, boom, job's gone. Money's gone, house gone, car gone, marriage gone, everything's gone. I go and live at the Salvation Army. During that time is when I was done. I mean, you know, there was some stuff that went on. So, I mean, I've got my little scars here. You know, it's like I, I tried to just cash out at one point. I'll walk you through the scenario is I, I just was done with life. I decided, well, this is this is this is going to be the day I sit there and I'm drinking. So I got uh, a, a bottle of uh, Captain Morgan's, one of the nice handle ones was that 1.75, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and I'm just taking plugs on that thing. Cause I'm all alone and you know, life's done. I'm just taking plugs on it. I've got my bottle of, of hydrocodone still at this time. Right. Cause they had switched me back because they, they switched me, right. They switched yeah. me from being with the good oxys to, okay, you can only have the hydros today. <laughs> so I take that whole bottle of whatever was in there. I mean, there's no more. I know there was more than 10. There's, I believe there's more than 15, but I took the whole bottle of that, slammed that down, said, okay, now this is where we're really going to end it. I said, both my wrists and I had them just kind of draining over the trash can, just sitting in my apartment. This, mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's one person that had a key to my place and next thing I know, I'm hearing my door kind of opening up or whatever. And this guy comes in and he looks and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like dying. Yeah. I'm like dying. I mean, you know, I was like, I'm dying. What's what are you doing? doing? It was a look I'm doing. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing great. Look at me. What are you doing? So, you know, like, so he called, you know, the police, all you know, for the ambulance, all that kind of stuff. And so basically, I mean, he found me probably at the one time that this was, this was a done deal. This was a for sure. There were the other times, like I said, where I take the pills and still be frustrated when I woke up. Um, but yeah, all those scenarios, they happened. Um, and 
they just were the result of being a very broken uh, human being who had zero understanding of emotional intelligence and who was pissed at anyone and everyone else, but yet could not look in the mirror and, and again, know who I was, have a clue about any kind of personal responsibility, nothing. It was all everyone else's fault. I'm the victim and this is what I'm going to do. You know, that's, that's where I was at that point. All righty. So what got you to the point then when, when was it that you said, okay, I'm done being done for one, I'm done doing this, trying to hurt myself. Now I need to help myself. What was the catalyst for that? You know, like they say in the 12 step program, Mm -hmm. you know, what it was like, we've heard all about what it was like, which is rough. Mm -hmm. What happened? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the the point of what happened during that period is there was a guy who had reached out to me, and his name's Eric Dodson. He had reached out to me on social media, and at the time, this is where they had, you know, they just kind of started using Messenger. Or I don't remember, man. He messaged me on Messenger saying, "Hey, you know, I was a huge fan of yours, and I just wondering, you know, do you mind talking to me if you don't have anything going on?" And I'm just kind of sitting there. I'm like, all by myself. All I do is hang out. It's just me all the time, you know, do my business, drinking, no job, no anything. And I'm just like, well, let's see. There's so much that I have going on that, uh, yeah, I don't have time. No, I'm like, yeah, man, let's talk. You know, I'm here. We started talking, come to find out, you know, he's struggling with drinking, things like that, and just life in general. We just start talking where I'm kind of there for him. I had some, at the time, you know, I had a guy who was kind of helping me to refocus uh, on positive things and to start looking at life in a positive aspect. And that was when I was having some really good conversations with Ricky Simmons. He had pointed some Mm -hmm. of that stuff out Mm -hmm. to me and I was utilizing that. So whenever I put a social media post, I always made sure it was something positive. Even if I wasn't feeling the best, I still try and project that positive as you put Mm -hmm. that out into the world, something that can happen. So from that relationship of helping Eric, I end up going down to Mississippi because things get so bad for me personally that I'm done. My my daughter was the one thing that could really kind of keep me here after I'd done some of those dumb decisions of trying to take myself out that I knew I have to be here. I need to be here for her. But when it got to the point where that no longer was enough for me, I went down to Mississippi. That's where my mom is at. So my mom and dad, they're still married and they're down in Mississippi. So I and my oldest sister is down there. So I wanted to go be around my mom because I felt like being around my mom, that's my person that's never given up on me as always, you know, trying to tell me something positive and trying to keep me upbeat and always gave me the reminder that this isn't how things end for you. It's just when you're ready, things will change. So I go down there. Crazy thing is that uh, Eric reaches out and he's like, hey, you know, I heard there's this foundation that helps, you know, ex-athletes that are, you know, in need and it's impacted them in a major way financially, things like that. He's like, that they'll help them. You know, are you okay with me putting your name in? And I'm so negative at this point. I'm just laughing at him, kind of like, you know, yeah, you can put my name in, but they're not going to help me. Or if they try and help me, it's not going to work out. I mean, that's just my <laughs> outlook. I'm just the Eeyore of Eeyore is just the most yeah. negative Nelly you ever met in your life. That's who I am. Okay, I, I embodied that. And so he, you know, he so he, he gives them the information. They reach out to me pretty much right away where uh, Murtaugh, you know, Jerry Murtaugh, it's his foundation, Nebraska Greats. They reach out. He puts me in contact with the woman who was running everything at the time, Margie Smith. And that's when things turn around for me is, is Margie let me know without a doubt. She had me, the greats had me and that she was holding my way through the whole process of getting the back surgery. I needed all those things. 
Margie would constantly get an earful for me every day. Margie, but I've screwed my life up. Margie, I'm a felon. Margie, I'm a loser. Margie, <laughs> I'm this. And I, I mean, I, God bless that woman who's like a second mom to me today because she would always tell me, Willie, you're not. You're not. Yeah. She's like, let's look at the facts. You graduated from Lincoln. You're like a three point, almost five graduate. You know, you're like you mentioned before, uh, Brooke Baring, your sister team member means you do a lot in the community. She's like, don't forget those things. Don't discredit those things. So she had to keep chipping away at this. I don't know, outer core shell that I built up of everything. And mm-hmm. I finally started letting her in. The surgery happened where I got that disc replaced. And during this time, too, while things are going on so much with me personally, where I'm so frustrated, so lost, not going knowing what's going on, I'm turning to doctors to get me a pill to fix anything. Because, you know, it's like I get into pharmaceutical sales and all of a sudden it's almost like I'm, there's a lot of medications that can help people. You know, they're shown to be efficacious and they truly work. But sometimes I think mentally in my mind, I was, well, there's got to be a pill for everything. I need a pill for this. I need a pill for that. That's where I got because mm-hmm. my anxiety was through the roof. I needed anxiety pills. So that got me on some Xanax. I couldn't sleep at all. So, you know, I let them know I couldn't sleep. So I get put on some Lunesta, if not Lunesta, whatever the other one is, Ambien, Ambien. you know? So it's like, and then I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I couldn't at the time identify how my drinking, my binge drinking combined with my pain pills had me at times where I'm just very much at a low and then when I don't have that, man, I'm feeling like, you know, I can do a lot that day. So I'm thinking I'm bipolar. So I get placed on all these medications. Mm. And again, on that for like a 10-year time period. So when I'm done and I get the back surgery, start losing all the weight like crazy. I start feeling better. But yet I know something's still wrong. Mm. Um, you know, I meet who is basically my wife. Well, she's my wife today, Carrie. I meet her during that time period where she's taking a look at some of these things because she has an understanding about alcoholism, addiction, and some of that runs in the family. So she knows some of the telltale warning signs. So she's trying to educate me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And long story short is that the script is gone uh, because the back surgery happened and things right. are going well. That's when drinking also and picks up more because I no longer have the pills to numb it. I need something else to numb the feelings I'm having. But again, mentally just, I feel like the medications aren't right. And I knew that for several years throughout the process, because I go into lasting hope, be there for a spell, then get released from there. They're trying to make adjustments. So there's always been this history of trying to get medications, right? Mm. I go into that last phase of, we basically move, because I'm in Mississippi, I meet her. She's was online. She's from Minnesota. We decided to come here because God put it in my heart that it was all going to work out. Because I got my relationship back with God, where I stopped trying to put God in a box, try stop trying to find him exactly who he is, what he is. That it has to be X Y Z. Let all that go. Went more of the broader concept of God is love. And when I see two people that don't even know each other, hug, embrace, have a connection, that's God involved. Yes, sir. And that's what works for me. And that's, you know, what fuels me. So I reestablished my connection with God, with Jesus. And so by doing that, I kept having these visions. And the vision came that I was going to go to Creighton. Didn't know how in the heck that was going to happen. Because, again, I got a <laughs> felony. I'm going to get Creighton for nursing school. But what happens is the last time I have something to drink, it's kind of my <laughs> – she uh, – she, we, we were still we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And it was kind of going to be our last hurrah. We're both going to get sober and, and be done drinking. I just took the hurrah a little extra like a normal alcoholic addict does. Hurrah, hurrah. Right? The hurrah, hurrah. I'm going to hurrah the hurrah really, of the hurrah. Got to reach okay? the mountain. Got to reach gotta the mountain climb of the this mountain. hurrah, right? And make sure that I just 
even find another mountain on top of the mountain. Okay. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. like I said, so it starts, of course, you know, start with the regular little uh, 12 case thing of like middle of high life. I go in the middle of that and go get like a 30 at the end of chase it all down. As they say on hot tub time machine on the chop it, top of chimney rock or whatever <laughs> is a bottle of, <laughs> you know, I love I that movie. That movie. I love that movie, right? Up, yeah. I love that movie. Okay. I just watched you tonight. So it's a thing it. of like crown apple. You know, it's a crown apple, big old thing. Uh, and I'm just pounding that. And I'm telling myself as I'm drinking it, finally, I'm realizing you are drinking this, this crown apple, this crown world, just like you are a beer where you're slamming it. You can't do that. You got to stop. And it's like my hand was saying and my mouth said, oh, really? Stop us. You know, and they just kept doing it. It's my brain okay. saying, you got to stop. <laughs> Next thing I know is I wake up in the hospital and I'm intubated. And the lady's trying to tell me she's all surprised that I'm in, you know, that I'm coming to. And she's like, okay, I'm going to need you to, to cough with me. And so she yanks this thing out. I cough, you know, they suction stuff out. And my ex, my hands were actually uh, tied to the bed or whatever. And so I'm just freaking hell out. You know, I wake up just terrified to bring that out. My throat's killing me. And um, basically, I could have basically OD'd on between the drinking alcohol and then, of course, what I do. And this time, I didn't really have anything that I was trying to. I don't know, chase, get myself, you know, to, to get cash, to cash out that I remember, but I, there was still some stuff going. Mm -hmm. So I took, I think the, a half a bottle of, um, clonic, uh, Xanax that I had. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the wife pretty much let me know that what she found, she came, you know, I'm having a great time drinking, but then I got emotional, right? I got to this point where my drinking turned emotional and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you know, crying yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? That's just that's just the lane I came into. Like I said, you, your drinking kind of goes from a spurt of having fun. It helps to stimulate you. It helps to get you out there to it, like starts to do something weird to you. It changes you. You really start to like yeah. be different and you're really emotional and caught up in all that crap. So that's where I was at, did the pills. And she came, came around the corner and said, I was just foaming blue stuff out of my mouth. So she had to call the ambulance. They pretty much showed up and I was barely responsive. So from that is when I wake up and I'm like, holy shit, I need help. Like, I, I need help. I, 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 I can't do this on my own. And I, I really do have a problem because up to that point, I thought I was OK. I thought because, right. again, I have my pain pills or I could play around with anything else here and there or whatever. And because alcohol wasn't it because alcohol is alcohol is legal everywhere. So it just didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And excuse me. So You're and fine. knowing that I need to go get help, um, Bob Newton having to be a contact of mine from on Facebook. And at this time I was placed on disability back in like 2010 because, you know, I was deemed as bipolar. I'm on a ton of medications. I'm 400 pounds. I can't barely walk past 15 yards. So I'm on disability. I get my income. I get my check every month and no one would take that to go to treatment. You know, no one would take Medicare or whatever. And the places that took it or whatever were filled. Right. So I'm making all these calls, trying to figure it out, reach out to Bob Newton. Bob has a contact that uh, is with a place called Recovery Ways, where Pat Gleason, he has some kind of tie in with them through Union Pacific. And long story short, he's got me scholarshiped in. So they, the day I got released from the hospital, I fly down to Salt Lake City, Utah to go to Recovery Ways and start the process of recovery. And mm -hmm. that was where the change around happened because... One, I knew I had an issue. Two, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. Three, I also recognized I didn't know who the hell I was. Four, I knew I had a dream of being this nurse, but it had no clue on how I was going to be able to make that possible. Um, and so being there, 
they let me know that I was right about the meds. Like you were taking you off all these medications. You're not bipolar. And there's other things that you're taking for your anxiety and your sleep. We're taking that away because at the end of the day, we believe that by you learning to process life and to deal with, you know, as they say in recovery life on life's terms, yes, um, that you won't need that. And I tell them, I said, well, hey, I'm going to be stuck here, right, for a while, like a couple of weeks or whatever, maybe a month. They're like, yep. I said, well, great. As long as I know that I've got you to watch out for me, if some shit goes really bad without any sleep or me freaking out, then I'm willing to do this because I will do whatever it takes to get better and to be sober. And that's how the whole the whole turnaround uh, started right then and there. Basically. So it's cold turkey. Just cold turkey. Just well, as far as with the alcohol and whatnot, yes. Now, I had to cold turkey the pain pills before I left Mississippi. You know, that was a process that I did on my own where I just stocked up on the Gatorade, did it like crazy. Wouldn't recommend anybody do it. It's not clinically safe to do. Went through the the, the crapping and the throwing up and the shakes and everything for like a week, two weeks. So did cold turkey it. I didn't want to do any of the Suboxones or, um, you know, methadone or any of that because I'm like, you know me. I'm like, okay, I got to trade something for something. You know, that's just how I've always operated. So let me, I need to be done with this one. Let's not replace it. So did it that way. And then, yes, that treatment, boom, cold turkey, done with all the pills, everything else. And that's just... That's how it started. So now it's just Mountain Dew. So now it's just Mountain Dew. It's like, yep, Mountain Dew is my deal. So, so you get through the process. You get through recovery. You've, as you said, you've reconnected with God. You've, you've met Carrie. Um, you've gotten clean. You've gotten sober, and you've gotten this dream, this mm-hmm. this vision from God that He wanted you to be a nurse. Yep. Without a doubt, that's what you're supposed to do. So, how did that all? Because this is about the time I started following you on Facebook. I believe I saw somehow one of your posts popped up. I friended you. I think you had just gotten out of the re- the clinic in Utah, wasn't yep. it? Yep. I so think you had just gotten out of that, and you posted something really cool. It happened to hit my algorithm. Why, I don't know. Probably mm-hmm. because of today is what I'm guessing. Okay. Um, so I saw it, and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I friended you, and God bless you. You friended back, and mm-hmm. I just started following your journey. And this is where I was at the height of mine. You know, the last 10 years for me was I didn't go through a day without a drink. Okay. I just didn't. Right. You know, there may be few days here and there in the last few months before I quit. I actually was able to, but that was by necessity. because so I was with my wife 24 seven and she doesn't drink. So and I was yep. hauling RVs. It's hard to have a drink in your hand when you're hauling an RV. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is where I was at. I was, I was there. I was, we get to the point where we're doing this podcast. I was drinking every podcast. I was getting embarrassingly drunk at times on these live streams. Okay. Okay. So that's how I'm coming into your story over the last four years going. I want that. Mm -hmm. I'm jealous of that. I wish I had his journey, but I didn't, I wasn't to the point of being done. Right. So, Here's where you are. That's where I was at in my journey. So I'm watching this and I'm seeing you go after your dream of being a nurse. You got the felony on your record though, mm-hmm. too. So apparently God did give you that vision because God was the one that worked all that out, right? To make it possible for you to get through school and to actually get hired as a how nurse. Was, how yes, was, was that possible? How did that all, So how in the world did that even happen? Because that's a mountain of a, in and of itself. It is. And it, that, again, is the reason why I started putting all my business out there. 
Because at the end of the day, if you don't have anything to hide and you are willing to share it all, there's nothing anybody can really say to you to embarrass you or to make you look bad about whatever because you own it. You're mm-hmm. comfortable with it. It is a part of your past, but it's not who you are presently. Um, and so that's what I had to do is become comfortable with that. The other part, too, is that in the whole recognizing the I want to be a nurse was the whole getting to know myself, which happened at treatment mm-hmm. where Again, I kind of shared with you before that somebody had asked me maybe 10 years before that point, you know, who is Willie Miller? And I was just like, that's a great question. God damn it. You just really burnt my brain. I don't know. <laughs> the, and it hit me, though, how sad that was to me. Like, it's like, wow, I have no clue. Mm. Like, is he this football player guy? Is he, you know, is he a business? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know who I am. You know, and it just it, it it that's where I was at, where I don't know who I am. And so and I really don't think I knew because I think I was too worried about trying to be who you wanted me to be. If you wanted me to be the football yeah. guy, I'm gonna be the football guy. If you think I'm a great businessman, I'm gonna be the businessman. You know, I wanted to please you and I was not comfortable being me. And the thing that I knew about me from ever since I was little, because I still remember doing this questionnaire thing in high school where I I I, I checked all the boxes about how I really care about people. And it came out saying, like, you love people. You'll be, you're great at X, Y, Z. And I think I had nurses a thing on there. And I was like, yeah, I'm not showing this to any of the guys. I want to hear this crap. You know, so it's kind of tossed it because <laughs> I was too sensitive. I've always been sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, when people would reject me or treat me in a certain way, and especially in, you know, middle school, high school, because I was a kid, I got beat up and bullied when I was younger. But the point is, I didn't want many people to know that side of me, how much mm-hmm. I did care. So I had mm-hmm. that little facade, you know, the tough guy facade. Um, so I was lost in that for a long period of time. But at treatment, I said, screw that. Whatever it takes to be sober and with knowing God. And I was like, I'm finally owning this. My mom was a nurse. I love people. I want to care for people. I'm going to be a nurse. And like you said, I had n- there was no way that could happen. Um, but then as I did some research and I started talking to people, I found out as long as it's not like drug related or like a violent offense, then there's a possibility. So by sharing my story and by letting people know um, when I they run into me or whatever, like, so what's going on with you now? And I'd share, you know, well, this is what I had been doing, kind of like what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. So I kind of updated them on that scenario. And it got to the point where I was starting to do my classes at, um, at Metro because there's a whole list. There's like 12 courses I needed to complete because I already had a bachelor's. I did communication with Creighton to find out what would it take to get into Creighton because God made it apparent right away. Boom, you got to go to Creighton. Like, this is where you're going. Blue and white is all I saw. Blue and white, blue and white, Creighton. <laughs> and it's crazy. I know, right? As a guy that went to Nebraska, I was just kind of like, well, that kind of makes sense. I'm like, because when I got done in high school, there's no way you can get me to go Creighton because it was the academic school and you got to be real smart to go there. And I didn't think I was smart. Go to Lincoln, you can be great at football. Yeah, and their classes are hard, but they're not impossible. Creighton, was, to me, was seen as impossible. Mm. So I knew I needed to go somewhere that was seen as impossible to complete. I did all my courses through that course of knowing people and, and building relationships that I had from the past. Um, you know, I run into say like Bruce Rasmussen, um, I get a chance to kind of update on him on, cause he knew, you know, these guys have seen like when I got in trouble, they, they knew. So they're like, what are you doing now? What's going on with you now? And I let him know that I'm doing classes now. I'm sober now. Um, and so, you know, I'm, tr- I'm looking forward to trying and getting Creighton. And he said, well, you know, that's one of the things he's like, you know, I'm going to be watching you, you know, as, as a lot of other people are, you know, work your butt off, you know, apply, you know, and we'll see what happens. There was no, Hey, apply to Creighton. I've got you or anything like that. He was simply saying to me, people are watching. 
you're putting out there what you're doing. Keep doing that because it lets people know what you're doing. It lets people know what you're going after. He liked that vulnerability part. I think he didn't say that, but that's what I'm going to guess. Maybe that, you know, because that caught your mm -hmm. attention then and me yeah. sharing and being open. So he's like, keep doing that. So by that time, it's about two and a half years of doing those classes at Metro. When I applied, there's guys like him. Um, and he was a big one. And there were other, you know, Coach Osborne wrote a letter there too. But I had other instructors from Metro that were willing to write letters. There was other people from my past that were willing to write these letters because they had seen the change. They had witnessed that I was no longer the guy who didn't understand emotions and let them override right. his intelligence. They understood now that I'm, I'm the guy who understands what's going on with me. If something embarrasses me, if someone frustrates me, if I'm hungry, if I'm tired, I mean, mm. I recognize those things and I don't allow it to be where I'm going to blow up at you. You know, we're going to have a conversation, you know, if we're friends, we're going to have a conversation and address the things. Mm. So they were seeing that I get done with, you know, classes from Metro. So I come with a three, five, almost from Lincoln. I got the four Oh from Metro and those courses there and I apply and on the um, application, I'm just completely truthful and honest. I'm like, yeah, I've messed up. I made a piss poor decision. But the difference is this is like when I wrote that it I also through sobriety and recovery, working my program, right, making amends. I mean, because I wrote that guy a letter that I had the incident with. Again, I don't know him, but I knew another officer that knew him. So I wrote him a letter where I let him know that I was truly and genuinely sorry. And that I was really happy that nothing say bad, bad, bad had happened to him or his family. Um, because it's something I like to make an amends on what has taken place. Mm -hmm. And, but I also thanked him. I said, look, you know what? This might sound really weird, but I also thank you for this. I said, because without getting in trouble, without being held accountable for like the last decade, I wouldn't have been forced to make changes that I made today. I'm like mm -hmm. writing this letter and being genuine. This is a change for me. And also I now have the full understanding. It doesn't matter what anyone does to me at all. It matters. What do I do? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if, you know, if I just do you wrong just to start with, or if I do you a certain way after you've done me, you know, towards me a certain way, it's all about what do I do? And I have that understanding today. So I wrote about that to Creighton and I wrote, you know, to them like, hey, yeah, I've had several things I've done, you know, that are just dumb. You know, I've had the lesson with addiction. And um, but what I do know is I can't ever drink or use again as far as, you know, the pain pills, things like that, or else I'm done. I, I get it, you know, um, but that's what I'm committed to. I work my program of recovery. I go to X, Y, Z places, things like that, as far as just letting them know that I'm accountable. And. From that and from having had a meeting with the dean who, um, you know, got a chance to kind of personally talk to her about my story and everything else through as well through my second mom, Margie, it worked out. You know, Bruce wrote a very nice letter of recommendation that I, where he gave me a very high. Uh, he wrote a very high um, letter of recommendation. And um, it I know that he really believed in me and he still believes in me, but there's just some things that um, I know without certain people um, having followed the journey and having witnessed the changes and then being willing to write it, I wouldn't have gotten to Creighton, but I did. But then getting through Creighton, again, there's people who were like, oh, wow, he's made to Creighton. It's going to suck when he gets done because he's not going to be able to license. And there's pretty much everyone was sold on that. They wouldn't tell me. I mean, one of my mm -hmm. closest friends, uh, Fred Hawkins, I love Fred. And I told Fred the day I met him at an event that 
This is my plan. And he told me he knew. And again, he celebrated these victories with me, but he's looked at me and he was like, I knew for the moment you shared with me that you were going to do it because you were that committed. And I could see it in your eyes and your body and everything. But he's like, you know, he he knows a few people and he would always check in to see. And he had pretty much received the answer. No, it'll be if people are willing to do the right thing, then he hypothetically should be able to, but it more than likely it's not going to happen. So when I got done, it came the time to apply to the board or whatever. And I personally reached out and I went down there in person and met with their main contact, sat down with her and I walked her through my story. I told her it's very important to me to be here present suit and tie, look you in the eye, talk about everything so that you know who I am. I said, so that way you can, whatever you see, you can engage on me in front of you. I'm like, and I'm going through Creighton's program. I'm like, it's an accelerated program. I've had a lot going on in my life, but I managed to get married during this program. I managed to live life through this program. I've managed to rebuild a relationship with my daughter through this program. And now I'm graduating this program. And I'm asking for the state to consider to allow me to take the um, NCLEX upon passing and graduating from Creighton so that I can continue on my journey to help people and to love on people. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, when I got done, they allowed me to take the exam. When I took the exam, I passed it right away. They had to wait until their next meeting. And I guess at their next meeting, they made a vote. And the vote, I'm t- again, I don't know for sure, but I was told it was kind of unanimous that they gave, they, did, they gave me a free and clear license to practice in the state of Nebraska. Now, typically, if somebody has some stuff, they do whatever. There may be some check-ins they need to do, you know. Provisional. Like, provisional. Stuff. And like every couple months, P test, things like that. But it's like they were able to look at the fact of being at Creighton, completing Creighton, being sober all the way through before Creighton, during Creighton, still after Creighton, that they're like, this is a person that's shown rehabilitation. This is a person that's shown a change at heart. And again, I mean, I make living amends on a lot of things. And there's a lot of amends that I made personally, ones I never thought I would. But it's like, how bad do you want to be sober? And so, like I said, I have had to own some stuff with some people that I never, ever thought I would have done. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the price of sobriety is giving it to God, letting it go. And truly, the hardest thing I still do struggle with is forgiving myself, not so much for what I've done to others, but for what I've done to myself with how mean and nasty my little my Ph.D. and that negative self-talk is. So that's why I love seeing other people. I love encouraging other people because sometimes I'll even tell them I'm also saying this in a bit because I need to hear it, too. And I won't tell it to myself. So. People know me well enough to know when I tell you something, I'm not, I won't bullshit you. If there's X, Y, Z, maybe if I don't want to say, I won't say it. But if there's some truth to what I got to say, I will say it to you. And it may sound weird to some people because they're not used to somebody giving them, say, a compliment like that. I don't care because it's not just for me saying it's God. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm not. The point is, from my heart, God's just giving you an inspirational word of encouragement to give to somebody else. It doesn't matter. I don't worry about, do you view me as a manly man now or do you view me as you know less than? I don't care because I know how God views me. And today I can look in the mirror and I know who the heck I am. And I can look myself in the eyes in the mirror, knowing that I'm just trying to be a little better every single day. Mm-hmm. So that's how the whole thing came about. And that's how the whole change happened. That's how... Creighton allowed me in. That's how the state of Nebraska allowed me to test. That's how the state of Nebraska issued me a license. Then the other wonderful thing is that I work at Methodist Hospital. You know, Methodist is a um, institution that, you know, their core principles are being patient-centered. They're on respect. They're on um, teamwork. They're on uh, excellence. 
Um, and, and those are their main principles. And they felt in the changes that I made that I exemplified those core principles and values. And so they allow me to work there. And so, you know, I work at Methodist, as you said, and the OR is circulating RN. And that's my life today, man. Something that is completely different from where I was at 10 years ago, because what's today's what 2023. So 2013, again, 400 pounds just checked out on 14 medications and on disability, mm-hmm. you know, get my little monthly check. And like now the changes that have made the work going back to work, you know, working myself, all disabilities are no more. I have to worry about disability check no more being deemed as any kind of say bipolar or any kind of issue mm-hmm. like that. It's just simply understanding that, you know, addiction and, and alcoholism, like all that stuff and the changes, you know, there's a lot of getting to know myself that I've had to do. And I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. So let's talk about that T-shirt you're wearing. I know that's close to your heart too. <laughs> Not just literally, but uh, it's something that you're you're really wanting to get get going, get yeah. people involved in, right? It is. It is. You know, this is, I would have, you know, on the Doc Doc podcast as well. This athlete survived, keeping hope alive shirt. And basically, for me, I didn't know who I was, and I didn't know my purpose once football was done. Uh, I was able to kind of remember my purpose or get that going and that feeling at treatment and understanding it it was to be a nurse all along and now it's time to go after that mm-hmm. that gave me hope having margie smith talk to me and and, and 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 slap me in the face when i was talking about all the negative stuff that gave me hope so these little buildings of hope so again that's the part about keeping the hope alive aspect is for someone who may have lost that who may have lost their focus who doesn't know their purpose in today but it goes a little further than that it's you know, at first I was thinking, well, how we could help, say, younger athletes, things like that. And I was thinking that uh, maybe it will be something where it's helping with their mental health or it's something where addiction, you know, those that need help to go and get treatment. But there's other foundations that are really focusing on those and some that have gotten in also on the addiction part. So therefore, my next aspect is you can provide some hope to, say, these younger athletes, reminding them and teaching them to have your own identity. Don't. Don't allow yourself to get sold solely on your athleticism because mm-hmm. one day that part of being an athlete is going to be gone. So who are you? So it's yeah. important to know that now as mm-hmm. they're young or like I talked to some older people, now you get to learn who you yeah. are. And it sucks as you're older to try and relearn, right? Know who the hell you are. A lot more baggage. But it's teaching them that whether they're young, but also the aspect of the hope is. Letting them be comfortable in who they are, establishing their purpose, but the hope that, I again, that's the foundational aspect that I want to create, is to help these kids actually go into the medical field. And it's to help them pay for maybe the schooling to go to maybe Methodist to be like a surge tech. Um, where they're, you know, they're clean or where they're sterile processing or they can be like a, a surge tech where they're handing the instruments or it gives them also the exposure. That's what I want to do is collaborate with some of the people in the uh, community to get some high school kids in to see what happens in the operating room so they can understand what a nurse does. They can understand what an anesthesiologist does or CRNA that's in there and the doctors. And it can give some kids like myself. I didn't have a clue what happened in the OR. I had no mm-hmm. idea. You know, my dad was retired as an officer in the Air Force. So I got exposed to a little bit more, say, than other kids. But even with what I was exposed to, I didn't have a clue of that. So there's a lot of things that I think a lot of kids don't know that I want to help get them the exposure. And then the kids who cannot pay for it, you know, let's have a foundation that can help 
pay for them, you know, to do this. If this is something they're committed to, that keeps hope alive and not only them, but in the patients they're going to be serving, the patients are going to be hoping whether they go into being a regular nurse, whether they go into be a physician. Like I said, mm. it, it, it fuels them with a purpose and a drive, and it keeps that hope alive for the people that need help in their medical health care as people kind of decide they may not want to be in that field. But what's better than being a part of a team? Again, mm-hmm. you know, for kids that really love being on a team or, you know, even adults, hell, being in a, a room where you're all focused on a patient, like in the OR, there's other scenarios, would be an EMT or something on the page, you know, going and getting mm-hmm. him. So there's all these aspects of how you can be involved in the medical community where you're keeping a hope alive, not only with educating youngsters and getting them involved, but then again, we as people, man, we need one another. And it's like we get in these moments and all these things where all these nasty things can be happening. But ultimately, man, I, for me personally, nothing feels better than when you see a couple of people coming together and helping, you know, for a common goal, you mm-hmm. know, like that random stranger, somebody sees fall down, somebody runs up, helps pick them up. I mean, those yep. type of moments are freaking awesome. So that's that's why I have this. And it's not just about me. There's others that are doing different things where they've gone down a certain road and they've made a change. So that that's really what it is, though, It's to kind of get caught up, though, on that fact of people being able to share and do those type of things and just utilizing it as kind of a um, kind of like as a jumping point or whatever for it all to kind of begin. Is there any particular reason why you chose soldiers, Spartans or anything like <laughs> that's, that? That's a good question. So my sobriety tattoo that I have down here on my calf that says serenity is kind of like a Spartan that is basically just given to himself, you know, and, Ultimately, it, it, it's reminiscent of me with life. It's like I've stopped fighting life. It's like, like the battle daily of having to fight it, right? Because I needed everything to go my way. And still, I struggle with that some days. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. where, you know, I want things to go my way. But it back before sobriety, it had to go my way. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't go my way, I'm going to drink over it. I'm going to use over it. I'm going to do something because things are just not going my way. Sobriety is all about giving it to God. So, you know, the male soldier, you know, and female soldier, they're really more in like a just a position of just you know Surrender. just surrendering just like you know what we have battled and it's just like anybody else you don't have to be an athlete hell you've gone through the battlefield of life and if life has beat you down a little bit as you've tried to fight it you now get to just surrender to the aspect of you don't have to fight and battle life you can make changes in your own personal life you can educate yourself you can learn so that when life is throwing you these events you can understand how to process them better rather than somebody say calls you a certain name instead of you just getting mad you can also you can all of a sudden have some intelligence like that's actually a really ignorant saying that person (laughs) is kind of ignorant i am responsible for my own actions what i say what i do therefore i just won't engage you can start doing things like that where before, man, I, I have you say something I'm like, well, yeah, F you too, you know, something. Yeah, just be like, yeah, let's let's do it. You know, no, th- that's the wonderful thing. So it's like, again, by surrendering, because, again, I used to always think that's the weak point. But no, actually, it's the acceptance, the acceptance that life is going to happen. I have to learn to try and be like water to flow with it. That's mm-hmm. that. Now, that's the great thing, right? Going it's against a, the it's strings, a you're only going to stay in one spot. Yep. And that spot, if you stay long enough in that one spot, you're going to drown. Mm. You're going to drown. That's just how it happens. So it's like you got to learn to go with the current, you know, and that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. This has been an inspiring conversation. Um, hearing your story uh, in as much detail as you've shared tonight. Um, and the fact that you were willing to build into me, mm. even though you didn't know it by sharing your story. Um, and then when I did reach out to you, 
was Thanksgiving week, by the way, was the day that I poured it all down the drain and I was done. And uh, wow. to reach out to you that day and say, I've quit. And I've got a couple of weeks before I can get to a meeting. And you said you immediately sent me your number, said, reach out anytime. You've been there a few times when I've celebrated some milestones of recovery. Um, I'm sitting at just over six months. Congratulations. Um, so grateful. Um, and I'm grateful that you shared and you were as vulnerable and as open as you were, because that is a lot of the reason I'm sitting at this table drawing a sober breath too. So um, you've given back in more ways than, than you know. So thank you. Thanks, kid. I appreciate that. That means a lot. Like I said, that's a beautiful thing about it too, is it's teamwork. That's again, you get to be on a team. It's your one Absolutely. another on. It's a common goal of Absolutely. staying sober. Yeah. And, I was I I didn't follow your story or anything of per first firsthand. I just was always hearing my dad just casually mentioning your story and and he was always saying like, Man, we gotta get him on the podcast, but then he'd go but then he would kinda kinda hesitate and 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 I could tell like in my mind I, I knew exactly what I wanted to tell him, but kinda like what you said, sometimes it's just best to let let people discover their own destiny and let people be be the architects of their own lives. And as much as I wanted to smack my dad in the face and be like, Hey, cut the shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was just it it was one of those things where I was I was I was watching him talk so highly about your journey and 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 it was something more there was something more to it than just than just hey here's a cool story about a former player it was it was more of like a like an internal battle i could see going on in my dad mm-hmm. and and just watching watching him kind of make that first little baby step that first step of the 12 steps and and then a, a few months later he's going he's he's like well, we got to have Willie on the podcast now because I don't have this. I don't have this overwhelming shame just like eating at my soul. And That's... and I and I was just like I was over the moon about it. So I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was of course I was down for it because because I'm 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 on my own recovery journey and, and I'm I'm a little bit further along, but I'm still I'm still, you know going through the motions, rolling through the punches at times. There's good days and there's bad days. But as far as I was concerned, I was like, whenever we get them on, I'm, I'm down to listen to people and their recovery stories because there's always little nuggets that I can take away from them and that I can selfishly take yeah. like, and, and say that just with, with the utmost uh, joy, because like I was hearing you talk about lots of things and, and there were things going on in my mind as you were telling your story that I'm like, yep, yep. Been there. Ooh, glad I was never there. Um, <laughs> and then other things that I just was like, yep, yep. I'm, I, I remember where I was at when I kind of had that had that same that same feeling or that that same that same experience and 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 I just love listening to you talk about just just when you're talking about emotional intelligence it's so interesting because saying I'm not an emotionally intelligent person but then you talk about but you're an emotional person which that to me makes no dang sense at all um so i that was a question i had earlier i i know we're kind of getting to the end of things but i just couldn't walk away from this conversation without maybe finding some reconciliation to that have you have you confronted that before have you 
have you thought about the the okay i'm not an emotionally intelligent person i was not the i was not the king of of my mind right but you were you were a slave to your mind and mm -hmm. and now you are the king of your mind and your emotions and whatnot when did when were you able to reconcile those things did you did you have that light bulb moment they just went oh this is what i've been doing to myself or what what how did that happen it, it, it was it's complicated question. it's an excellent question but it, it's complicated you know it is very it's, complicated it's, it's almost like yeah that's why i couldn't I, I couldn't figure it out it was very complicated for me so, to hear so at treatment and things like that we really dove into childhood things childhood trauma childhood thoughts sure thank you and while I was doing that, I learned that that's where a lot of my negative self-talk has come from. That's where a lot of my judgments come from. I've learned that I've been really, I've, I put myself, I wear a mask. I've wore a mask for a lot of people so they couldn't hurt my feelings. Well, the thing I had to learn is that none of that was going to get better or improve until I learned to like myself and actually love myself. So not in a weird, you know, because everyone wants to be weird. But no, I've never had a self-love or appreciation for myself. I could love anyone else, but my cup was so empty for myself, it was ridiculous. So what I really had to work hard on is gaining a true understanding of who I am, what my principles are, what uh, of how I love people, how, you know, my dad instilled in me to, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I mean, all those type of things, right? Just really understanding who I was. Now, you, the the other people can't hurt me as, as much because I was my own worst critic. But in that, there was things that I learned, say, like you said, you heard me talk and you got a nugget here and there. That's what happens in recovery, yeah. right? Is that if I'm at a recovery and I'm around people in recovery, they start talking. I hear how they have dealt with something. I hear how they have dealt with a scenario just like mine. I hear them talk about how they, their emotional intelligence, they may not use that word because we use that word different times now, right? Yeah. Is that they understand instead of being, you know, angry that they were scared, you know, they understood that their feelings were hurt. And that's something I learned to treat it was to understand your feelings. Like it's okay. Like no one can argue with you. You say, you know what? When you said that it really hurt my feelings, it made me feel. No one can argue about how you feel. Someone can argue about what they did or what you're accusing them of doing, but you the way you feel is is how you feel. Yeah. So identifying where that know, feeling came from too. Cause I when I learned and that was like the most profound life-changing nugget I got from my therapist and then going to treatment over and over again. I heard it over and over and over again, but it took a while for it to actually set in was that when I'm angry, I need to identify where that anger comes from. Am I angry at this thing mm -hmm. or is five-year-old me angry? Because yeah. five-year-old me was very angry and very upset mm -hmm. all the time. And I did not have the emotional intelligence at five years old to understand why I was angry so I'm 20, let's say I'm 25, right. I'm 28 now, but I'm 25 and I'm really, really, really angry. Right. Am I angry or is that me at five years old that's that's coming up, coming up out of the woodwork, that that emotional, in, un, uh, unintelligent right. five-year-old who was just hurt and broken. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm now a 25-year-old mm -hmm. and I'm still hurt and broken. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, did you have kind of that 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 moment where where when you started to dig into your emotions like 
was was it one of because for me the thing that I realized is I was not good with my emotions because growing up I was a very very emotional child and I punished myself for it mm-hmm. and now I'm a very very emotional adult and I reward myself for it because because right. I, I I recognize now same person right just different outlook right mm-hmm. different right. outlook and I when I'm angry I'm passionately angry yeah. when I'm happy I'm passionately happy. Right. Did you make that like reconciliation with with your emotions? I did. I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that see, and I'm glad we're going a little deeper into this because people need to understand this stuff takes work. It doesn't happen overnight. And if you want this stuff to stick, if you want your moods to change, if you want your loved ones, your relationships to change, this is the kind of work it takes. And it's not easy. It is hard. It is painful and things like that. It can be. So for me, I also had to go back to that little kid. And at times through working with the therapist, things like that, they said, at times when you have something really frustrating, sometimes if it's really getting to you, imagine yourself as your five-year-old self and your five-year-old self comes up to you frustrated about the scenario you're facing. What would you say to your five-year-old self? And it's like, Man, once they gave me that little nugget, man, yep. that thing is worth more than a million billion dollars because, yes, I have my days and my times. And trust me, I am that perfect. There's people who I work no. with can attest to this when I'm hungry, when I'm when I'm frustrated. Oh, I have I'm my a moments, angry right? Bitch. I have my moments. Yeah, me too. I can be a little <laughs> right? bitch. Right? Right? 100%. But it's like, oh. but that's the kind of work, though, at the moments where you might say, okay, the old you would do something really stupid. That is the peacefulest, easiest thing uh, to deal with that situation is to think about that moment with the kid. And when it comes up to you, you're so insulted, you know, and you're just kind of like, yeah, but you know how much work we put into this. Mm-hmm. You need to be proud. You worked your butt off and you have made a lot of changes. Like you talk, you know what I'm saying? So it yes, just, it's, it's a changing healing. that inner voice. Yes. It's changing the inner and it voice. It doesn't come it right heals. away. It comes nope. with practice. It comes with repetition over and over and over again. My therapist tells me this every, every therapy session, I got a new therapist. Thank God for him. He's been awesome. And, and he just tells me like anything in life, you've got to do it over and over again. And I think what scares people from recovery and what scares people from, helping themselves it doesn't even have to be drinking it doesn't even have to be drugs it doesn't have to be some catastrophic thing just some character flaw that they have is that when they fail once they take that as a as a as a as a as a as a that it that it's permanent in game yeah it's it's end game failure and it's like it's no it's just one of many failures and there's this there's this guy who was my who was my mentor in high school his name was also Scott, Scott Dugan, shout out Scott Dugan. He would always tell his kids. And at the time I did not understand how profound it was, but he would just always tell us as high school boys, like the, the goal is to not, not fail. The goal is to just fail less often mm-hmm. and to be okay with failure. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was just like, yeah, yeah, that's fun. That's a nice little bumper sticker slogan. I love it. Um, and <laughs> and when I was going through recovery, like that stuck with me because mm. it was like, because now I hold this mindset of like, am I going to fail? Probably. No. But can I, f- I'd rather fail in other ways though. You right. know, I'm, I'm okay mm-hmm. with failure so long as it's, as long as it's something that I know how to handle. And if it's something I don't know how to handle, 
that's also fine too, because honestly, I love situations that are actually completely, totally hundred percent outside of my control. Cause it's like, well, that's not my fault. I can't do anything about that. Um, but the things that I can, I hate to use the word control, but it's, it's like the things that I have a grasp on, like, I'm also okay with failing in those things because I'm human and I'm bound for failure. Um, So when it came to recovery, it was like, I'm going to probably fail again and that's okay. And that's okay. Um, And I still kind of hold that mindset and I I might, I might change it. I I might, I'm thinking I might change it, but um, it's helped me get over three years past where I was before. Mm -hmm. Um, And just listening to your story, just, it just, oh my gosh, I I love talking to people about this stuff because it's not just about the drugs. It's not just about the alcohol. It's about the universal human experience of battling life mm-hmm. and fighting our demons. We all got our own demons and sitting here today with a bunch of I mean, I I think I'm a, I think I'm a grown man, but sometimes <laughs> my wife can attest I act like a child. Um, I don't mind too. Yeah, but she she likes it. That's why she <laughs> married me. She's like, you're such a kid. Um, but we're all sitting here, a bunch of grown ass men mm-hmm. sitting here talking about things that Getting maybe emotional. maybe yeah, you know. I, I know one thing that I can say you know about my father that I greatly appreciate is. Is is he never he never shamed me for um, for anything um, that he he never shamed me for who I was, and he always made sure that 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 I knew that he loved me and that I was loved for who I was. And, and we are all sitting here as men with broken cycles of some sort. Mm -hmm. There's things that your father did. There's things that your father did. There's things that my father did that we all are, are in and strive of changing. And I, I, I can't imagine, I can't think of anything better than that in, in life right now, because it's like, it's like, uh, things are way like life is way too hard to <laughs> to to have bad experiences with your dad yep. you know yeah. 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 having a good dad is yeah. is is key so um i, I I'm, I'm gonna get off my soapbox but i just just sitting here just i can't I, i'm getting chills just thinking about it because it's like god this is what i want from our world you know, it sounds so cheesy and goofy, but it's it's reality. And that's the cool thing, too. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that's awesome about recovery, too, right, is we get to mend those different relationships. And we also learned, like I say, because I got a chance to share on a different show how great my relationship is with my dad today. But it's like we 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 learn those things, right? We learn that the things we may have taken personally, that's not personal. It's just that's what their dad taught them. They taught, you know, so they so they don't know. They just do whatever worked for them. And maybe even they didn't like it. They do it too, because they just think that's how you do it. 
you know, recovery and things like that, it challenges your thinking, it challenges your way. So it changes, you know, how you might do something. And then you're able to kind of communicate about it, right? Because you're not so emotionally worked up. You can actually have a conversation about it. Yeah. And it creates an amazing bond. I mean, it's done that with my dad, it's done that with my daughter. You know, and it's things that we can finally accept, like, you know, yeah, some people, oh, man, that's a cheesy, corny conversation to have. Well, you know how freeing it is? You know how freeing it is? It's like we worry about being manly. It's like, uh, what's more manly than being able to have a good conscience when you go to bed at night, being able to be employed, actually pay your bills, actually have a relationship with your family? If that sounds less manly to you, then, hey, well, then whatever. If that's working for you to be at the bar and drinking your sorrows away every night and not spending time with your family, not facing any responsibilities, not facing any of the demons in your own life, that's fine. If that's more manly, then I will take this less manly version of life any day over the other version of life that I tried to live that I thought everybody else you know, viewed as manly and probably still do because this me can recognize not only the emotions, but I can also understand and know, you know what? It's that time. I need me a good cry. I'm going to go and I'm going to throw on freaking uh in game, you know, or whatever with the Avengers or something, you know what yeah, I mean? Like I'm going to throw that on. I'm going to throw because I'm fine with that. I'm going to throw on the Lion King because sometimes like I said, that's where I'm at with myself. I can do that in public and watch it and cry. I really don't care because I don't live my life anymore for you, for you, for whoever's watching me. I live my life for God and for my family and to try and be the best person I can be every day that I'm blessed to see. And like you said, as long as we get to take another breath, we may fail in a moment, but there's that just gives you the opportunity to succeed, to try and succeed again. And again, the moment we stop, the only moment we ever truly fail is when we just quit period. And I've done that and I tried to be done, but for whatever God, reason, God saw it, you know, unfit to take me and still has me here. And it's for moments like this to be able to talk, to be able to go through, to deep dive, have these conversations, have you feeling where you feeling like you went and went on your soapbox and went deep, but I loved it. I mean, that added a whole nother element of depth to what we've been discussing pretty much the show. It lets people know that, it, you know, it, you don't have to be a freaking starting player down in Lincoln to live life. I mean, we all live life. Yeah. And it's like they get to actually find out that recovering its sense or just in general, uh, the willingness to understand that you don't know everything and to be willing to get a little mm-hmm. hope. Look at the impact it has. You and dad doing a freaking podcast together. I mean, you know, it's just this is the stuff where you more people want to say, well, where's God? I mean, boom, God made this connection. Yep. Mm-hmm. Do more gather his name. So there yep. we go. And I won't and I won't lie. You know, I was like there were times where I, you know, I resented my dad. Mm-hmm. I resented him. And it was for the it was for the wrong reasons. Cause just like you said, you learned that there were ways that your dad loved you that you didn't understand at the time. And there were patterns of behavior that your dad had at the time that that you were trying to you were trying to change him. Mm-hmm. You wanted to change him. Right. And I remember many conversations where, you know, early in my recovery, I was recognizing all of the things that I saw at the time were harmful to me growing up. Yeah. And those those thoughts have completely changed now because I now recognize that. Yeah, well, you know. My dad did his damn best and and he succeeded in more ways than he ever failed. And so thank you. It's it's one of those things that like there's no more resentment in my heart. I don't I don't hold any resentments. I hold them all as blessings because 
I'm the man that I am today for every reason and every situation that's ever happened to me. And I want to trade it for a damn thing. So thank you, dad. Thank you, son. One of the gifts, uh, if, if I would have sat here two, three years ago or more accurately in the sleeper of my truck, Mm -hmm. With an open bottle of Jim Beam, because I didn't have a glass. I just drank straight out of the bottle while Less we were dishes. recording. And if I would have, if you would have told me that less than three years later we'd be sitting in a table in a fully, pretty cool studio, pretty cool, studio. Um, and that I'd be six months sober and seeing a success level for our podcast that I never would have managed, I'd have told you you were crazy. But now, looking back, I can see that this podcast was exactly the vehicle God used to get me sober because <laughs> I knew I was drinking a lot, but I didn't understand how deeply it had taken root in my life until I tried to do a podcast without drinking, and it scared me shitless mm-hmm. to be on camera. And the first time I through the motions, the, yeah, and then the first time I ever cracked the mic after getting sober. And doing the post-Iowa show that we did, it was one of the most joyous experiences of my life. So I'm like, because Iowa sucks. I'm not afraid. And yeah, Iowa sucks for one. And I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah. I'm not afraid of being me. Yeah. I'm not afraid of of admitting that I am weak. Um, because you know the Apostle Paul wrote it that there was a thorn in the flesh given him after he took on his ministry and he asked God three times to remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you because it is in your weakness that my power is made perfect. And that's the way I look at my recovery as I'm just living with the thorn now and it's all good. The thorn is sobriety and I'm cool with that because God's grace will keep me there. Yeah. So, so anyway, Willie, my goodness. I didn't think we'd get that deep. I didn't think, I didn't think God would take us that route, but we've all three of us sat here before we cracked mics, before we started this. And we said, this is in God's hands tonight. We don't really have an outline. We have a flow of where we wanted the show to go. And we didn't even get to uh, the last part, but that's okay because we got to the part that we needed to get to, which was gut level, honest about everything, gut level, honest about, uh, about our relationship. Uh, that I didn't see coming, <laughs> and but thank you for that. You gave me a great gift tonight, one that I didn't see, didn't expect. So, before we go, uh, we're going to institute a brand new tradition on Generation Red. Anybody that sits at the table with us will get to sign the sign, if you will. So we've got a couple of sharpies here, and anybody who's a player or been a player uh, for Nebraska gets the opportunity to sign on the end or in that inside that white circle. So Willie. You get the inaugural signature. Choose your color. Oh, boy. CU colors. I'm not sure why we're doing that, but we're doing it. But uh, okay, you pick your poison, my friend, and sign wherever you want there on that inside of, okay, the, end. of the end. I know it's a little dusty. Well, Scott, you were saying to use the gold. Players use gold. And players should use wanna... gold, okay. I guess. All right. So <laughs> I think I think the gold looks cool for players. All I right. Mean, Let's, Why the heck not? You know? All right. Let's, all right. You guys want me to sign this thing? All right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we got to hit the line a little bit there. 
You're all right. Sign it anywhere. It's a good. It's all good. Right. And it. now that you've done that, Willie, uh, right. let everybody know where they can follow you if on social media as well as any information that you have out there where they can get more information about athletes. Uh, revive. Well, right now I have to say Athletes Revive is still working on all the, the um, social media things for it, but you should be able to look up under athletesrevive.com um, or athletesrevive.org um, and it should take you to there as well. I believe social media, What it, I don't know, Willie Miller. I think I'm Willie Miller Jasker on uh, Instagram and just Willie Miller on on uh, Facebook, yeah, it's like on. Uh, sorry, he threw this one at me. So yeah, Willie Miller. <laughs> oh, at Miller Willie fifteen for Twitter. If you yep. want to follow, start putting some photos and things like that out there. And uh, yeah, on LinkedIn, just under you know uh, Willie Miller. Yeah, BSN RN. So yeah, feel free to follow any social media things. Like I said, awesome. I want to start putting a few more things out there and stuff. So. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. This has been pretty awesome. You know, it's good to get a chance to do that and get to know you tonight, Scott, too. And just uh, hearing the uh, change that has taken place in you guys' relationship, just the healing, even though it wasn't to say a certain head that, you know what I mean? But just the healing, just Mm -hmm. uh, the interpersonal part of that. That's really deep. And um, I'm grateful that you guys are willing to share that. Yep. I'm grateful that you came. So really appreciate your sitting down with us, Scott. Where can folks find you? Yeah, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Scott Pod. That's Scott with two T's. The second T is, in fact, silent and will remain that way. Um, you can follow me there. Don't do much there at the moment. The off season is just – I'd have to try to talk about things, and I don't like to do that. So um, follow me there. When we start to get more towards fall camp, I'll probably pick things up. But preemptively, follow me on Twitter at Pod. And you can follow the show at GenRedPod on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as Generation Red on your favorite podcast app. The audio for this show should be released sometime Tuesday morning. Might be splitting this one in two. Mm-hmm. Have a couple of them to put out because I don't think we're planning to do any streams or any shows between now and, and sometime in July. So, But we will be live at the Hale Varsity Club sometime this summer on a Monday night. So nice. that's going to be really cool. Anyway... For everybody watching, thank you so much. For everybody listening, we really appreciate you downloading the show. He's Scott. I'm Ken. We're here with Willie Miller, and all three of us have experienced something incredible tonight. And this has been Generation Red, and we're here to remind you every week that there is no place like Nebraska. And Iowa's corn just sucks. I couldn't think of anything fun to say. Sucks bad alcohol. It sucks. It sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe 2020. I don't know. It sucks. Yeah, but I'll leave it with a go big red and, and go Jays. Go Jays. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll hey, let you get by red, with thanks. that. Thanks. All right. There you go. <laughs> See y'all later. <laughs>